Our different senses communicate with different parts of our brain. Scientists say that when we smell something, that goes to the emotional part of our brain. When we smell something that's familiar, it might kick up an emotion. It might kick up a memory uh, of something we experienced in the past. For me, when I smell a campfire, I think back to experiences as a Boy Scout and many camping trips. Uh, perhaps you think about a cake baking and it reminds you of being at your grandparents' house and something cooking in the kitchen. Or perhaps it's a perfume that your uh, parents or grandmother or somebody wore and you smell it and it brings up a, a, a memory of that. Uh, they're not always pleasant memories. If you've changed a diaper, you remember that those aren't always pleasant when you smell another one of those. But often those are happy memories. We think back to something we smelled. So think about something that you've experienced, uh, a smell that brought back a, a happy memory for you, something that was pleasant for you. In our passage for today, uh, there are guests at a house for dinner, and the whole house just fills up with this fragrance that lingers for days, perhaps even weeks. Before we read our passage out of John 12, I want to give you a little bit of backstory about what's going on in chapter 11 and a little taste of what's happening in the latter part of chapter 12 and moving into chapter 13 to sort of frame our passage for us for this morning. In chapter 11, we have the story of Lazarus, of his death and his resurrection performed by Jesus. We find in verse 32 that Mary has come out uh, to meet Jesus. Uh, Lazarus is dead and in the tomb, and she comes to him and falls at his feet. Whenever we find Mary of Bethany in Scripture, it's often sitting at the feet of Jesus. And there's no better place to be day in and day out than sitting at the feet of the Master, learning from him. And Mary does this frequently throughout Scripture. In verse 39, it speaks of the aroma of death. And we can compare and contrast that to the fragrance that we find in chapter 12 uh, today. Verse 45, it says, Therefore, many of the Jews who, who had come to visit Mary and had seen what Jesus did believed in him. So Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead. And because of that, many who heard or experienced or have seen that are now believing in what Jesus is saying. So the Sanhedrin calls a meeting in verses 47 and 48, and they're deciding, what should we do? If we let this man Jesus continue as he has been, we have the threat of losing our power. The Romans will come in and take over. And so in verse 53, we see that from that day on, they plan to plot to take Jesus's life. We find out right after our passage in chapter 12, not only the life of Jesus, but uh, Lazarus also has uh, uh, his head out as well. They're looking to kill him as well. Shortly after our passage, Jesus is moving in his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So things are moving quickly as Jesus moves towards his final days and his journey to the cross. And then in chapter 13, we have Jesus washing the disciples' feet, which is a we can compare that to what Mary does uh, for Jesus in chapter 12. I want to put a few slides up to help us see some similarities and differences between our passage. You see, a, a version of this story is found in all four Gospels, which I think is significant because all four of the Gospel writers, uh, there's not many things that they include in all four, and this is one of them. Now, there's some similarities and differences between those. For example, in Matthew Mark and Luke, uh, those writers do not name the woman in the story. John names her, the only one, as Mary of Bethany. Matthew and Mark place it at the house of Simon the leper. Luke is at the house of Simon the Pharisee. And in our passage in John, it's the setting is the house of Martha and Lazarus for the dinner. Matthew, Mark, and John place it in Bethany. 
Luke places it in Galilee. In Matthew and Mark, the anointing occurs on the head. And in Luke and John, it's the anointing of Jesus' feet. Uh, Luke speaks of washing the feet with tears. John, it's anointing the feet with expensive ointment. And then all of them have an objection from someone or someones. And in Matthew and Mark, it just simply says that some objected that the money wasted could have gone to the poor. In Luke's version, Simon says if he were a prophet, he would know that woman is a sinner. John, the objection comes from Judas, who thinks it's a a waste of, of what she's done. The John passage most similarly lines up with the Mark passage, but some similarities and differences uh, between the stories. So that gives you a, a sense of, of how they're different between our passages. But today we're going to be focusing on John's version out of his gospel. So I'm going to read John uh, chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. I invite you to follow along with your Bible or the pew Bible there in front of you or your mobile device if you'd like to do it that way. Beginning with verse 1 in chapter 12 of John, it says... Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, the home of Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. There they gave a dinner for him. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those at the table with him. Mary took a pound of costly perfume made of pure nard, anointed Jesus' feet, and wiped them with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, the one who was about to betray him, said... Why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and the money given to the poor? Now he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. He kept the common purse and used to steal what was put into it. Jesus said, leave her alone. She bought it so that she might keep it for the day of my burial. You always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we've got Martha, and Martha, as she often is in Scripture, it says that she's serving. We've got Lazarus reclining at the table, and I think it's significant that the author of John points out that Lazarus is there for a couple of reasons. Uh, As we talked about the context of what's happened and why people are believing, it's pointed, I believe, that he names Lazarus as sitting at the table. And then we have Jesus, Jesus, Judas, and Mary. This is a rich text, and I think we could take any of those individuals and parse it out and glean uh, a whole sermon from it. But I want us to spend our time this morning looking at Mary and what Mary teaches us. But before we do that, I want to give us a a brief glimpse into the difference between Judas and Mary and their actions and their response. And then a brief moment uh, for the response of of Jesus in verses 7 and 8. So I'm going to put up a couple slides about the differences between uh, Mary and Judas and give us a compare and contrast of What's going on between them and in their minds? Mary's heart ran over in love. And in contrast, Judas's heart was full of greed as he was self-serving. Mary was a representative of true discipleship and Judas was a representative of false discipleship. Mary poured out an extravagant gift and Judas questioned her action as sheer waste. Mary is in love with a God who loves her. Judas is in love with money. Mary gave something very precious to her, to Jesus, whereas Judas simply wants to hoard that which is not even his own. Mary sacrificed financially. Judas sought self-benefit. Mary grieved openly and shared in Jesus' suffering. Judas was resentful of Mary's action. Judas was simply uncomfortable with her devotion. Mary broke the jar, whereas Judas kept the bag. 
So quite the contrast between Mary's actions and Jesus' reaction to that. And then we have Jesus' response uh, to what's going on. In verse 7, Jesus simply says, leave her alone. It was intended that she would save this perfume for the day of my burial. You always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. See, Jesus looked at Mary's heart instead of her outward performance. Where Judas points to Mary's failure, Jesus affirms her extravagant love. Jesus accepted the gift that Mary poured out, not because he desired or needed to be lavished with extravagance, but because he knew it was her heartfelt expression of the profound gratitude and love that she had for her master. So what do we do with verse 8? Jesus says, you always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. So much of Jesus' ministry had been shaped around the poor. He ran with them. He healed them. He ate with them. He taught them. He shaped his ministry around them, quite frankly. And that statement in verse 8 seems to run counter to so much of Jesus' ministry leading up to that point. Some misinterpret the passage to mean that it's a pass to do ministry with those who are like that. The scholars suggest that Jesus really was probably making a reference to Deuteronomy 15.11, which in its entirety says, There will always be poor people in the land. Therefore, I command you to be open-handed toward your fellow Israelites who are poor and needy in your land. Maybe Jesus sensed that to do something for the poor could be done at any time. Jesus, of course, is very aware of what the next days hold for him. He knows that his time on earth is running out. Maybe Mary had a glimpse of that. Maybe Mary didn't. We're not quite sure. To show the heart's devotion to Jesus had to be done before the cross on Calvary took him to its cruel arms. What are the things that you and I need to do before we don't have the opportunity to do so any longer? I want us to take a look at a video and get a glimpse of maybe what was going on through Mary's mind at this dinner. My sister Martha asked me, now Mary, what exactly was the purpose of that little scene you caused right there in the middle of dinner? And all I could say was, it was just something I could do. Maybe I'm getting ahead of myself. Let me back up. Meeting Jesus. I guess I just never thought he might be so personable. One who would come to our home and have dinner with our family, laugh at our jokes, <laughs> tell a few of his own. Sitting with him made everything else seem less important. So that night, right before Passover, we wanted to honor him for everything he'd done in our family. Looking back on that night, we knew, knowing that the whole world was against him, there could have been so much more. We could have let him know that we were unified, that we were all for him. And that was a missed opportunity. Where was I? So that night, um, we had him over for dinner to honor him. But 
How exactly? How exactly do you thank someone for bringing your brother back to life? <laughs> well, our sister Martha was in the kitchen preparing this perfect meal for him. And then there was me. What could I do? I decided to give up one of my most precious possessions. Precious things given to Jesus never really seem wasted. And I knew as soon as I did it, it was obvious. Some people weren't pleased with my choice. It wasn't planned. It was spur of the moment. It just, it leapt from my heart. I let down my hair in public, which you just don't do. And I wiped his feet with it. And then I poured out an expensive perfume jar of oil to honor him. And the beautiful scent filled the whole room. Now, if I would have stayed paralyzed in fear over what my sister would think after she made this huge meal, or the anger of the onlookers, or what a disciple could say, I might never have worshiped him that way. And the beautiful scent, oh, it stayed for days and days. Sitting at his feet, none of their opinions really mattered. Jesus was pleased with me. And he stood up in my defense. So why did I do it? I guess it was, it was all I had. And days later, Jesus would pour out everything he had for us, for me. So what can we learn from Mary? I think there's three things we can learn from Mary this morning. Number one, Mary humbled herself. Number two, Mary seized the moment. And number three, Mary didn't hold back. Mary went all in. The normal custom of hospitality in the first century would have been for the slaves to wash the feet of the guests coming to a house. In our story, Mary performs that action herself. Not only that, but a woman would never touch another man other than her husband or children, certainly not in public. A woman rarely, if ever, let anybody outside of her immediate family see her hair. Feet were typically not washed with perfume, but rather with water. Mary gets on her knees in front of her master and washes her feet, washes his feet with perfume rubs his feet with her hair. Mary humbles herself in front of her master who she loves so deeply. In the next chapter, Jesus humbles himself as he gets down in front of his disciples and washes their feet and then challenges his disciples to do the same. Like Mary, in what ways are we called to humble ourselves? To remember not only who we are, but whose we are. <clears throat> 
So Mary humbled herself before Jesus. Number two, Mary seized the moment. We don't know for certain what motivated Mary to act when she did. Perhaps, like the video said, she was grateful for Jesus raising her brother from the dead. Perhaps she had a clue as to what Jesus faced in the days ahead. Jesus seemed to indicate in Scripture that Mary had purchased the perfume for his burial. But for whatever reason, in that moment, Mary saw Jesus sitting there at her feet. She decided to seize the moment to honor him by humbling herself and pour, pouring the perfume that she perhaps used for another time in that moment. In divinity school, I had a class that uh, we broke into small groups, and those small groups sort of formed uh, for the semester. We spent a lot of time during that class sharing stories and talking about our experience and learning and growing from each other. And there was one uh, gentleman in my group, his name was Benjamin. Benjamin was uh, at Campbell studying uh, to uh, further his skills as a pastor. He's a pastor in Kenya, and his wife and two girls were still in Kenya, and he'd not seen them for well over six months. And we were talking with them about the fact would he be able to go see them over the winter break. And he said he had the time, but the funding just wasn't there financially for them to connect uh, together during the month of December and first part of January. Rick, another member of our group, was really touched uh, by Benjamin's dedication to come as far as he had and to spend that time away from his family. And he said, Benjamin, I'm going to buy you a plane ticket to go see your family for Christmas. Of course, Benjamin was touched. We were all touched by that radical act of hospitality and generosity that Rick shared with Benjamin. Do we focus so much on the future that we miss those opportunities in front of us? What about those times in which we're so stuck in the past that we're looking backwards that we don't even see those opportunities that are right there in front of us? By nature, I'm a planner. I like to plan things out, and when the plan is set in place, I want to follow it along exactly as the plan was set out. Why else would you make a plan if you're not going to follow it? Suppose Mary had indeed bought the perfume for the burial. What if Mary had sort of kept it back and held on to it and not honored Jesus in the way that she did? What if she didn't seize the moment that was right there in front of her? Like Mary, can we take what we've set aside for a later time and commit it to some other time that presents itself? See, we carry the perfume of our gifts and our treasures through life in an unbroken jar. It's not that we never intend to use it. It's just that the timing never quite seems right. Some things we can do at any time, or at least we think we can. But unless we see the moment, sometimes those opportunities that present themselves disappear. Something stirs within us to do something generous or perhaps big-hearted, but we put it off. We make excuses. We'll do it later. Timing just isn't right. That desire sometimes doesn't linger. And sometimes it'll go away altogether. So we have to seize the opportunity to do ministry when the opportunity presents itself. Mary sensed that she could honor Jesus as he sat at her feet, and so she did. She seized the moment. In a short while, whether she knew it or not, she wouldn't be able to do that in the same way. Towards the end of Luke chapter 9, Jesus is walking down the road and several men approach him and express some interest and desire to follow him as a disciple. And so Jesus tells them very clearly what the cost of discipleship is. And one by one, they come up with an excuse to, to delay their following him as a disciple. We never hear from these men in scripture again, so 
From all we can tell, that desire, that impulse to follow Jesus as a disciple went away, never again to order their life in a similar way. What opportunities have you and I missed in our lives to honor the living Jesus because we didn't seize the moment? So Mary humbled herself before her Lord. Mary seized the moment. Thirdly, Mary didn't hold back. Mary saw this as her opportunity to go all in. The text says that Mary took a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and poured it on his feet. It doesn't say she took a a drop or even a meager amount, but rather she took the whole pint and poured every drop of it onto Jesus' feet. Scholars suggest that the cost of that would have been a year's wages, 300 denarii. So Mary certainly did something extravagant for Jesus. Something within her let her know that this was her time to push her chips in, to go all in. So Mary took her most prized possession and poured it out for the one that she loved more than anything in the world. Like Mary modeling that for Jesus and Jesus modeling the being a servant and humbling himself before his disciples, Jesus would do so days later as he poured out his very life for all who would claim him as Lord and Savior of their life. There's a woman by the name of Osceola McCarty, and I think she's got a story of radical generosity. She was a washerwoman from Mississippi, and in the sixth grade, she dropped out of school to care for an ailing aunt that had been caring for her. And she'd spend the next 75 years of her life washing other people's clothes. Most of what she made from doing that, she set aside and and saved it. And towards the end of her life, she gave away over $150,000 towards African-Americans so that they would have the opportunity to have a college education that she never got the chance to get. Towards the end of her life, Osceola commented that she didn't regret one penny of what she gave to somebody else, but she simply wished that she had more to give and to share with others. Her extravagance mirrors the extravagance that Mary does in our passage today. I'm sure that life savings was very precious to Osceola, but she wanted to share it with others and to be generous with it in another way. What greater gift can any of us give God, whose own son gave himself for us, than to offer ourselves to God, to strip our souls bare of all self-protection, to pour out our very lives in the dedication to the one who poured out his own life for you and for me. We won't always have the chance to do the extravagant thing for Jesus. The meter's running for us all. The impulse to be extravagant is rare, sometimes from God, and certainly not to be postponed. So Mary's valuable possession was perfume. Yours and mine is is probably something else, but there's something that each one of us considers a prized possession. Something's very near and dear to our heart, and if we search our heart far enough, we'll find out what that is. Would you be willing to give it up for Jesus, to pour it out on the behalf for Jesus? God doesn't really need our most valuable possession, but what if we consider at least making it serve a greater purpose like Mary did. So how extravagant is our love? Do we go through the motions? Do we come in this room week after week and sing songs and pray, listen to the sermon? At least you better be, at least these two boys down here in particular. Um, 
When we walk out of these doors, though, how extravagant is our love? Does it, does it go with us? Or do we leave it bottled up in this room? Do we make a place for the outcast, for the rejected, for the oppressed, for the homeless, the marginalized souls that Jesus so dearly loves? Mary didn't hold back from giving of her very best to Jesus. What if the real waste for Mary had been holding on to it until the day that Jesus had died? See, in Jesus' death and resurrection, he flung open the doors of heaven in the most extravagant act of generosity that exists. On this side of the resurrection, our task is to take that same kind of extravagant generosity that Mary offered to Jesus and to offer it to those most in need, the poor, the oppressed, the downtrodden, the brokenhearted. That is the extravagance to which I think we're called. Mary didn't hold back. Mary went all in, and so should we. So how long did that smell permeate and linger within the house? Days? Maybe even weeks. What if, as Jesus hung on the cross, he still got a whiff of that lingering fragrance that Mary had so graciously poured out onto his feet? And in that moment, he remembered how much dedication and love that Mary had for him. Can you smell it today? This passage still lingers. The smell from this passage lingers still today. In the Matthew version of this story, 26, 13 says, Truly, I tell you, wherever the gospel is preached throughout the world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. You see, Mary of Bethany's story is still told and retold again and again. The smell of her extravagant generosity, the smell of the love and devotion that Mary had for Jesus Linger still today. Mary humbled herself as she bent over the feet of her master. Mary seized the moment that was right before her to honor the living Jesus. Mary didn't hold back. She went all in as she took one of her most prized possessions and poured every drop of it out onto the foot of her master. See, you and I can do our part to make sure that the the fragrance from this passage continues to linger on forever. As we seize the opportunities before us to honor the living Jesus. As we humble ourselves. And as we don't hold back by offering extravagant generosity when that impulse within us says to do so. You see, authentic devotion to Jesus involves a humble spirit involves the taking the opportunities that lie before us and giving him of our very best and not holding anything back. Amen. We're going to have a time of response. I don't know what the Spirit's stirring within your heart in this moment, but you've got several ways that you can respond. I'll be down front, and if you've never claimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I'll be happy to celebrate that important decision with you. If you've been thinking about making Oakmont your church home and haven't done that yet, we'd be welcome to, uh, happy to welcome you into this family in a formal way. We've got our uh, candles in the back that you can light in honor or memory of someone. We've got our prayer stations in the back that you can write a prayer card, and we pray faithfully over each of those every Monday morning as a staff and, and revel in the opportunity to do that with and for you. 
We'll have uh, ministers in the back that, that could pray with you as well. Whatever it is, the response God's calling for you, maybe it's thinking about uh, an opportunity before you or that will soon be before you to seize and to go all in for your uh, Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Whatever it is, as we sing a song, I invite you to respond in the ways that God invites you to do so.